the very quiet halls of the second floor of the AC building. It's live from AC Second. Who's here? Uh, I'm Sam Mulberry. And I'm Chris Moore. And that is it. That's right. Uh, much like our normal podcast crew, uh, Bethel University is is winding down. Uh, we had commencement on Saturday, and everyone's sort of heading off to their separate ways. The hallway is full of of um, transport carts. That's right. Because the entire uh, hallway is moving to a different location. Uh, we're going to keep calling this live from AC Second as long as we possibly can. But our even time, though we may not always be, at but a, our literal AC time on AC Second is. Well, might be kind of limited, so we're we're uh, we're not teaching. In fact, the hallways are not dominated with our college students, but they're dominated with thirteen-year-olds. What right. is it's going the, What is the, going on here? It's the young writers. Uh, I don't know what you would call it, young writers workshop conference. Yeah, conference is probably the right uh, thing. Hoot nanny. Yeah. Um, well, we heard part of that today. There was there was a there was a jam band. There yeah. was um yeah. It's often sort of a a. Um, Kind of steel drum band, and I don't know if that yes. was today. I couldn't quite. We didn't hear enough to know, but they used to do it outside in Kresge Courtyard, right? Mm-hmm. And my office is right over top of that, so I used to be uh, treated annually to uh, this to a bunch of elementary school kids listening to a cover of Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville, which is always it's a, great, a little discordant. Yeah, at least the weather works out. Like we're in the nineties here; that's good weather for marim- a marimba band. That's right. <laughs> you, uh, you you don't want marimba when it's negative twenty. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just, just, it doesn't it's, play it's well. It's just offensive. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, Sam, we're here uh, to talk a little bit about not how I spent my summer vacation, but how you sp- spent your spring semester. Yes. So, uh, while well, the rest of us were teaching our normal classes Toiling and going to away. our normal committee meetings and, and doing our normal research, uh, you were on sabbatical. Yes. And for those few people who might be listening to this podcast who aren't familiar with this process or concept, what's a sabbatical and what did you do? Uh, well, it's sabbatical for college professors, or at least for college professors at Bethel, at Bethel every seven years. You're given the opportunity to basically take a, a paid leave where you pitch a research project or some sort of development project right. um, that is it's pretty open-ended in terms of kind of what, what you can pitch. So maybe we could each say what we did on our previous sabbaticals. Um, my sure. first one was in the spring of 2011 mm-hmm. and I did a bunch of media production, um, for the academic support center, created a bunch of online workshops, things like that really with the express purpose of learning some skills in terms of filmmaking, but also making interactive digital, digital, um, sessions i guess i don't know what i would call them modules yeah 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 and i did something a little bit more traditional i worked on a couple uh chapters of a book manuscript uh, dealing with uh using uh games and simulations in the classroom so so for this this sabbatical i just finished however i um, i decided i wanted to do something that that was really focused on one project where before i probably had five or six different things that all kind of tied together, but they were separate discrete projects that I worked on throughout. So this was, was a, um, was one big project. I'm, I'm really interested in, um, institutional history in mm-hmm. oral history, um, in faculty development and filmmaking. So I kind of wanted to, those are some pretty disparate topics. Yeah. I wanted to tie all those together. So, um, what I did starting in January, um, was I, I contacted, uh, well, Bethel has a, Uh, an award that's been given out every year since 1987. That's the Faculty Excellence Award in Teaching. Right. Um, So I wanted to do something on teaching. 
uh, and I th- wanted to do interviews, so I thought, well, okay, how do I pick who I interview? So I said, well, I'll just I'll contact everyone at who's still at Bethel who's, who've won this teaching award. So there were 20 people who uh, are at Bethel who've won the, the Faculty Excellence Award in teaching. So in December and then January, again, I contacted um, those folks to see if mm-hmm. they'd be interested in sitting down for long-form interviews. Okay. So I had 15 people respond uh, positively to that, that they wanted to, so... <laughs> No, so I, yeah, no, that's that's a great. I'm just I'm marveling. That's a great response. Right? It, it absolutely is because I, I mean, it was a big ask. I asked them, you know, I I want 90 minutes of your time, and you're going to be talking, and I'm going to be filming you, and there, those are lots of hurdles for lots of people. Both the mm-hmm. amount of time, um, being on camera, being on camera is a big one, and then that they're really providing of content. Um, uh, so so yeah, I was I was amazed that I had 15 people interested. So, um, in January, February, and March, I did those 15 interviews. Mm-hmm. And um, cut them up into individual clips, and then also cut them each interview into its own sort of discrete thing. So, mm-hmm. so um, to sort of make them watchable. So, if I if I were to sit down and interview you for, let's say we we talked for about seventy minutes, that would probably turn into a fifty five minute um, video by the end. Sure, because you know you cut out the questions and. Uh, if people kind of stumble over things or just the kind of side talk that isn't germane to what we're doing so right. yeah so um so I, I cut all those up i built a big digital archive with those clips but then the back half of sabbatical so april and may i took the 14 hours of footage from those interviews and my goal was to make a, a documentary film so mm-hmm. i do a lot of video production but i haven't really done a lot with uh trying to do a long sustained piece um and so i this was a challenge of doing something i'd never really done before um, so my goal was something around kind of feature length, so around 90 minutes or right. so. Um, so I spent basically two months taking 14 hours and trying to find something that was coherent that was you know around an hour and a half long. Um, I want to ask you a question about just that yeah. moment there. So as you went into this project, I have other questions I want to ask you about this project. Absolutely. I should say up front, I've seen this documentary. Uh, we, you screened it a couple of weeks ago. Last or week. Last yep. week. Wow. Uh, this has been a blur. Uh, you screened it last week at at, at Bethel, and uh, it was fantastic. Thank you. And you don't have to say that, but I I will say that. Um, this is I, before we get any further into this into this conversation. Uh, this is freely available. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anybody can can go online and find this film. We'll give you some. Do you want to give provide that? Sure. Now? The, the 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 two easiest ways to find it would be to either go onto YouTube and search for Why We Teach. And then probably put in 2018, and it'll it'll come up. Okay. Um, or you can go to cwcradio.wordpress.com, and that's that's my website. So that has the archival footage, mm-hmm. but then that also has a tab for why we for why we teach. So I think this uh, documentary. I, I really do think this is valuable outside of the Bethel uh, community, outside of what we do here. I think this is a, this is germane to people who are. Teach, teach at the college level. I think this is germane to anyone who teaches, period. There's a lot that's very inspiring here. There's a lot that's very, I th- frankly, moving um, in terms of, of how great teachers describe great teaching. I wanted to ask you, though, as you went into this project, did you have certain themes you were looking for, or did you find those themes inductively as you looked at these 14 hours of footage? That's actually a, a really, I think, a really great question. I had... I didn't have specific themes. Now, I had questions. Mm-hmm. So questions kind of imply potential themes. Mm-hmm. But I, I gave everyone, before they were interviewed, I gave them uh, a PDF that was uh, a full page front and back 
of questions. Okay. Pretty small print. So like they uh there was way more questions on there than what I asked. Mm-hmm. Um so my goal was to say I'm not going to worry about where this is headed while I'm interviewing people that I'm going to find it afterwards. Right. So so that was part of the the challenge. I mean it's obviously much easier to interview someone if you're like here's what I want you to talk about specifically like right. I didn't know what I wanted. Um, and I and like I said, because I knew I was going to build this archive, I thought, well, everything we talk about is going to have value. I just don't know what's going to be in the in the finished product in the in the ninety minute cut. Right now, I will say, as I interviewed people, there were there were often moments where someone would tell a story or say something, and in my head, it was like, well, that's in the movie. I don't even know what the movie is, but I would be shocked if that's not that piece needs to be yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, because they're they're just they're sort of just moments where. Uh, it's it's kind of people's personalities shine through a, a really imp- core idea to how they think about teaching shines through, mm-hmm. or just a, a really insightful moment. And um, so in my head, I was just kind of picking those things out and saying, "Okay, well, I know I know I'm gonna get gonna use those." Yeah, that's fascinating. I what what um, surprised you from some of those moments? Like what emerged? Maybe that you didn't you didn't know you were looking for from the questions, for example. Um, I think whenever somebody told a story, that was, uh, I mean, that's one of the things if I, if I were to go back and talk to myself, you know, before I started doing the interviews, I would have, I would have really hit, hit hard the idea of get them to tell stories Mm. Um, because I, because I think this in telling a story, that's where those ideas kind of ring, ring truer. So that was definitely a piece of it. That probably wasn't surprising, but. Um, but that definitely, I definitely realized that as I was editing that that I tended to be drawn towards people taking an idea and illustrating it in in an example in a story. Um, I was just surprised by certain people. Like I didn't, I didn't know most of the people I, I interviewed. I have had a conversation with maybe, but sure. not a particularly long conversation. And these were pretty in depth and intense conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone like uh ken steinbach i mean i've been on a he's an art professor here mm-hmm. um i've been on committees with him but never really had a long conversation i've always found him to be really impressive but he kind of blew me away um same with lita frazier lita frazier mm-hmm. was one of my was, that was one of my favorite interviews um you you start the documentary with her, correct? Yeah, with the story she tells about a teacher she had at the University of Tennessee, mm-hmm. probably in the sixties, I think. Yep, that yeah. makes sense. Um, so so, uh, yeah. So that was I, I really I, I really was impressed by by her. That was I don't know if surprising is maybe not the right word. I just didn't know her very well. The interesting thing was the interviews that were. At first glance, I thought, oh, I don't know, really know how those went, were the ones that I did with people I knew really well. So Sarah Shady, mm-hmm. Chris Garrett's obviously there on podcasts on this network. Like they're some of my best friends. So interviewing them was a little strange because we talk about things all the time. So when when those interviews were finished, I walked out thinking, I'm not sure if there's how much there is there. Now when I would when I went back later and watched those interviews again, I realized, oh, there's actually really great stuff. Right. It's just in the moment I'm so used to that 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 they uh, they didn't strike me in the moment. Sure. Does that? I wonder if that's true of other documentarians who do sort of these oral history type things that you get more out in an immediate sense of of the people you're less connected to or less. Like. I think so. Yeah, because it feels more like a conversation. And what's interesting is with all the interviews, I feel like the first for most people, the first ten, fifteen, twenty minutes. 
people are a little their guards up mm-hmm. a little bit more um and by the time you hit the 20 25 minute mark that starts to fade away yeah and they get a lot more animated they mm-hmm. it, it really does feel more like we're having a conversation sure and the camera melts away and and so so a lot of what's in the in the film is stuff that sort of falls after that first um after that that first thing so the first question i would ask everyone is really kind of origin story stuff like how did you become a teacher so you notice in the film there's a little bit of that in some stories they tell it in the first probably 10 minutes but almost all of that stuff isn't actually in the film and it was in that but that was like a warm-up question right um but also really important to understanding who the who the each of the interview subjects is almost all my colleagues that I'm aware of, including the ones who talked in your documentary, talk about teachers they had as they talk about how they became a teacher. Mm-hmm. Almost no one says I had very mediocre teachers in my life. And as a consequence, I decided to improve upon that structure right. and become a teacher. <laughs> right. Uh, almost everyone, said, everyone, everyone points to models. Everyone points to mentors or um, almost apprenticeships that they, that they were part of. In becoming in becoming teachers, yeah. And what, what's interesting, what's really interesting, is if you look at the first ten minutes of the movie. So the first ten minutes of the movie, one of the big challenges in terms of putting this together is how do you introduce fifteen characters mm-hmm. and like establish who they are without spending half the movie like trying to establish who they are. So I I gave myself about ten minutes to say, okay, can you introduce fifteen people in ten minutes and tell you something about them? So mm-hmm. so to do that, I looked at, I wanted to find, it's just about everyone is talking about a teacher they had in the past or talking generally about the teachers they had in the past. Right. Some aren't specific about a like a, an actual um, specific person. Um, what's interesting though is if you look at each each story that's told in the first ten minutes. I also, because lots of people talked about multiple teachers, I mm-hmm. tried to find a story where if you look at who, the teacher they're describing, that it also describes themselves. Hmm. So, for example, the, the la- in, that, in that introductory run, the last person to talk is Kathy Nevins, a psychology professor here. And right. she tells a story about uh, a graduate student at the University of Colorado when she was an undergrad. Right. And what's interesting is I am a student of Kathy Nevins. I had two classes with her. And if I were to tell a Bethel story about a really kind of transformational moment in my education, mm-hmm. it is so strikingly similar to Kathy Nevins' story, except Kathy's the teacher in that story. Hmm. Like, so, so when I heard her tell that story, it was like, oh, like, I have that story too, but you're, but, you're, but you're, you're the, the other professor. role. Yeah, yeah. so, so uh, and I feel like with a lot of those, they really are talking they're talking about a teacher they loved, but they're they're really talking about themselves in, in lots of ways. So I so I tried to pick that um, pretty intentionally as much mm-hmm. as I could. I want to get back to some of the nuts and bolts you're describing sure. in terms of how you structured the documentary. But first, I want to talk to you more in broad strokes. A lot of people write books or, like you said, do other kinds of projects for sabbatical. Mm-hmm. What motivated you to want to do a, a documentary? Um. I am really interested in in media production, video production. I, since I was a little kid, I wanted to. Um, I, I, my dream was to kind of make movies or TV shows or cartoons, mm-hmm. or because that's what I did. As like I was, I was an inside kid for a lot of my life. Like I liked, I just like to watch. I watch stuff all the time. And when when that's a big piece of your childhood, you sort of think like, well, I want to be part of making that. Right. So as a kid, it was pretty hard to do that. 
Okay. Um, we didn't have a video camera or anything like that. Um, but my parents had some friends who did, and um, they were generous enough to let us borrow it for school projects mm. and things like that. So I had the opportunity to um, make a few kind of movies for school and yeah. do some really rudimentary editing in what you could do with the with the with the camcorder, you right. know. Um, but that was always really interesting to me. I remember building a um, uh, kind of movie projector out. Of, did you play with constructs as a kid? Is that yes. okay? So, so my brother and I, we got a. My mom was a teacher, so we got overhead transparencies. And okay. We cut them into strips and taped them together, so it was a long. You're already way ahead of what I did with my constructs. Yes. So, so it was a long roll of clear, of uh, clear plastic. Yep, I got gotcha. you. Um, and then I had a, I had the constructs that had like the motor. So okay. we, I used that to then spin in this, this basically it was like a film projector that mm-hmm. we built. Now the motor didn't go very fast, but you could then have something moving on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we put a flashlight behind it and kind of boxed it out. So you could kind of project that onto mm-hmm. the, uh, project that onto the wall. So like, I remember like that, I was, just, I loved the idea of, of making something like that. Um, so when I came t- to Bethel to teach in, t- uh, I came in 2001, but in the summer of 2005, um, I think Stacy Hecht and a couple other folks had this idea of we should make a movie for the first day of class for CWC. So I jumped on that just because I thought, well, that's what I want to do. Mm. I mean, this would be so much mm. fun. So, um, so I've been doing that ever since, and um, in in doing things for church, doing things for Bethel, and sort of slowly trying to improve. So, I mean, I will say you actually play a major role in. Um, pushing forward visual style because this is a perfect example. In uh, 2016, uh, you and Zoe Vermeer, who was the student body president, yes, uh, you you all were talking about wanting to shoot this political civility video, mm-hmm. and I remember it was fall break, and you you emailed me about it. You showed me a kind of template of what what you wanted it to look right. like. So then I spent that weekend watching YouTube videos about how to shoot an infinite white background. And hmm. I realized, oh, I need to buy some back. I need to buy a backdrop. I need to buy soft boxes for lights. So like, so I bought equipment for that, mm-hmm. which then became central to how I would shoot an interview and, right. um, and things like that. So a lot of it is kind of collecting along the way and building to, um, building to a project like this. I will also say, I mean, if I'm putting my cards on the table, like I, I'm not a, bad writer but writing is not something that i that i love Mm -hmm. so this was a chance to say how could i create something that was really driven by ideas because i mean one one another version of this would be to interview these professors and write a paper or write a book about it well this was a way to do that but the in the organizational challenges of it is a lot like writing a, a long paper or a book but instead of it being focusing on the written word i'm focusing on how does it look how does it sound and how do these pieces fit together? Right. So, so that that was a that that's kind of where part of where the origins of it come from. It's it's always been a dream of mine. It's the kind of thing I do, and it was a way to to do something productive and kind of scholarly without um, without having to to write. Well, I think as someone who writes scholarly work, I think your scholarly contribution is enormous because rather than submitting a paper to a fairly obscure journal that only a handful of practitioners will will watch or, or read you produce a documentary which is very accessible which i hope lots of people will watch and i think the the the, the width the width of the impact could be much larger so i mean it's also it's a digital humanities project and that's right. been a big push in our department can you describe what digital humanities is yeah yeah um 
in a department, so I teach in the history department, and one of the issues that we have, I mean, I, I think all, all sort of humanities departments have this struggle of, well, what right. do you do with this major? And in reality, a lot of our majors go on to be social studies teachers in high mm-hmm. school, middle school. Mm-hmm. We don't send a lot of people to graduate programs because in truth, the world probably doesn't need a ton more history PhDs. Like there, mm-hmm. there aren't necessarily lots of jobs that are going to, that, that a history right. PhD is going to get you to. Right. But studying history is unbelievably valuable for lots of jobs. Um, so we're sort of we started to think about how could we train our majors with another set of skills. And so 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 digital humanities. There, there's really two ways to think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, either it's using uh, computers, digital tools to do research in new ways. So if you right. have uh, text uh, or, or digital versions of texts, you can do this kind of wide reading of like um, kind of data mining right. into text and things like this and do a different kind of analysis where you're using the computer. Or GIS mapping system. Exactly, right? Correct. So, so there's, there's tools you can use to then do, you know, go and write a paper. So you're doing traditional scholarly output, but the tools you're using are Innovative. these digital tools. Yeah. The other version of this is to say, well, you could do something very traditional, but your output could be different. So instead of writing a book or a paper, maybe you create this robust website or right. you make a film or you do some sort of interactive digital media or a podcast series mm-hmm. or something like that. So um, that tends to be the, the the part of the digital humanities that I'm really interested in is saying, well, how can we have different kinds of output? And it really is about accessibility. I mean, yeah. uh, if, I, if, if this were a long paper or book that I wrote, um, lots of people that I know wouldn't, even the people who would have who would read it because they're friends of mine, like they wouldn't have read it yet, mm-hmm. right? Because it's sure. it's a. T- but I can, in ninety minutes, I can convince you to say, well, you should sit down, you know, and read this, right? You know, or read this, sit down and watch this. So, yeah. um, so that that's a, a big piece of it too. Yeah. All right. Let me talk a little bit about your your technique in this in this documentary yeah. because um, you do have these these great clips from these 15 different uh, fantastic teachers here at Bethel University and you have uh, interwoven them with a couple of, of uh, filmmaking choices mm-hmm. and one of those was you used a lot of instructional educational films from the 50s and 60s and 70s actually goes back to the 30s okay, 30s can, to the 70s yeah. uh, there's uh, it's this really affecting uh, way of, of, of weaving these interviews together can you talk about both where you got those from? How many, and and how you made some choices with those? Yeah, yeah. So, so the idea to do this uh, came from my my favorite documentary documentary filmmaker Errol Morris. Mm-hmm. So, th- so I really did use a film he made called Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control as a template for this. Okay. So in that movie, he he interviews four people, um, but four people from like vastly different uh, walks of life in terms okay. of w- their their vocation. So. There's a, a lion tamer, a robotics expert, a topiary gardener, and an expert on naked mole rats. Okay. And and he but they're all kind of these quirky geniuses in their field. Like mm-hmm. they're 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 unbelievably accomplished in this weird in sort this of one thing. Way. And 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 he so he takes those four very different interviews and pulls them together to try to really to me I mean it's a rumination on creation and God and the nature of of life and what is life and and, mm. and um and what is art and what is creativity. So it's one of my favorite movies. But in doing this, he he films a lot of footage from different things and sort of cross cuts them. But he also uses 
I mean, he has the money. They don't have to be public domain things that he uses, but he uses sort of old movies and some of these other things to kind of create illustrations or, 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 or I mean, it's kind of like thinking about like a collage, right? Like you, sure. you sort of paste these things together. So I thought, well, I really like that. That's really effective. And I know I couldn't do a movie. I couldn't do 90 minutes of just interview clips. Like I could, but, mm-hmm. but that would be less interesting. Like I wanted to try to do something a little bit more visually interesting. So um, there are big are uh, of digital archives online of public domain mm-hmm. films. So these are all things that are in the public domain. And um, so I s- did a big search for, I think I did searches for like education, classroom, teaching right. for so different keywords and just pulled up huge lists of films. And then over Christmas break, I was at uh, my wife's family cabin and I just started to watch these things yeah. and, um, and look to see anything that had, classroom footage so some of them are kind of weird like mm-hmm. one is a the i think from the 1930s is a, a film put out by hills brothers that's about coffee but it has some <laughs> classroom footage so i actually use use the classroom footage from that even though most of it is about how coffee was produced in the 1930s um <laughs> and so so i, I did one pa- i watched 70 of those of those films 70 yeah so they're about anywhere from 10 minutes to half an hour okay um but kind of scrubbing through them a little bit too, looking for classroom because some were almost all classroom footage and some had thirty seconds. So like, you, if you can find the thirty seconds, you can say, okay, well now I know where that is, so I can make a note of where that is. Right. Um, some, it's the whole film is is that way. I mean, right. there was there was a lot that were actually, and I, these these work really well in this film that were about using films to teach. Mm-hmm. So lots of like beautiful shots of film projectors and things mm-hmm. like that in, mm-hmm. in in a classroom. Um, so I. I isolated those those films, downloaded them, cut them into clips, and then or cut out all the footage that was classrooms, and then I cut those into smaller clips. So I had this huge. Um, it was probably fifty minutes of, or maybe more than that, maybe close to an hour of of these this classroom footage that I could have as almost like a painter's palette mm-hmm. to drop things in once I once I structured the the, the interview clips. Uh, and then in terms of selection, there are some that jumped out where it's like, oh, this person is talking about, uh, well, Ken Steinbach is talking about art. Like some of them were films about art classes. So I wanted to make sure we had at least a little bit of that. There were some that were explicitly like students in science labs. Okay, well, right. then if you have Sarah Wise or you have Carol Young talking about the importance of the sciences, mm-hmm. you're going to use some of that. Or there's uh, there's a clip I mean, one of these that stands out where it's kind of on the nose is there's a, a moment in the film where Dan Ritchie is talking about the nature of freedom. Mm-hmm. And there's a clip of this teacher, and on the board he has the First Amendment, and he's underlining the word freedom. So it's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, that actually lines up kind of perfectly. perfectly. Yeah. But I also didn't want to be totally on the nose at the same time. I wanted sometimes when Ken is talking about about art to have pictures of students in a science classroom or students in a right. in a math classroom or something like that to say like well what he's talking about actually applies to these other things absolutely so the process really is starting with is there an obvious one i want to drop in there but then i would also just sort of randomly grab some uh impart some in color some in black and white so mm-hmm. you kind of had that and then you would look at it and say how does this look uh every once in a while you'd find something that came off a little offensive so you're like okay i want to take that back i'll give you an example okay um carol young was a psychologist. Yes, a psychologist. She's talking about the the importance of the sciences, and she starts by saying, "You can take an an emotional approach to life, 
or you can take a rational approach. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that statement. Nothing offensive about that statement. Now, when I first grabbed a clip and popped it in there, it was a clip, as she's saying this, of a young woman at a microscope looking up, looking towards her teacher and saying, Mm -hmm. "I, I can't see it. And then the male teacher comes over and, like, fixes it. Now, that clip is fine, too. But if you have that clip lined up with, you can take an emotional approach to life or have a rational approach. And, like, it lined up (laughs) with... And this is your misogynist moment. (laughs) Right. So it's like, okay, well, that's a perfect example of, like, you have to be careful how do these things line up. So I actually used that that video clip later on, and it's benign. It's just a student Mm -hmm. asking for help. But if you put it in the wrong spot, it's problematic. So so I was looking for that stuff, too. Yeah. Um, I thought what this did was you had these 15 uh, teachers talking about teaching and telling stories about teaching and then you would juxtapose it with views that were almost always on students mm-hmm. and always always with, with in the classroom and kind of pairing those two ideas together got you continually thinking about the the circular relationship between teachers and students mm-hmm. this output this this reaction this feedback both of the positives and negatives of that and i thought it was i thought it was a really smart choice to to have that well, be thanks. sort of the 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 tendons that tied those interviews together um you did something else and uh we should talk about your you know your your um your second unit photographer here. That's right. But um, you filled some B-roll um, mm-hmm. in some Bethel classrooms, and you did something, and I just want to ask you to interpret this a little bit, mm-hmm. but you basically filmed, and I knew it was you, but that's because I know you, but mm-hmm. you filmed yourself laying out your mise en place, your all your accoutrements, mm-hmm. uh, to for you to teach a class. Mm-hmm. And so you had some paper and some pens and your PowerPoint remote control or your you know your mm-hmm. slide projector control. And you had uh, a book by Frederick Buechner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you had a, um, Augustine's Confessions. Yes. And all these things slowly made their appearance on a podium. over the, and, and that was a sort of almost this little mini story that occurred throughout the documentary was this sort of this faceless professor preparing their the stuff they need to, to, con- to conduct a class and then and then teaching throughout so then, so yes. yeah so so part of that was i film a ton of interview stuff like beyond this project like that's mostly what i do and i've never really shot anything where it's like i wanted to do something that at least felt a little cinematic mm-hmm. um where i was thinking okay i want to think about how each shot is lit and and just sort of make something look really cool so i mean i shot it at 60 frames per second so i could slow it down so mm-hmm. all of those are 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 kind of run at half speed okay so there's kind of a almost a dreamy quality to yeah them. yeah um and so how i thought about those i mean if you think of if, if you notice how those start they start with sort of these long pans of an empty classroom and the classroom right. is cc 313 which is the primary classroom where I teach. I mean, that's yes. where CWC is taught. It's a tiered classroom. Yep, yep. And so, so it starts with an empty classroom, and then the next thing you see of of that sequence of footage is um, is my hands putting down a box, mm-hmm. and I always carry a box with me. So, like, that's an indicator that it's me as this well. This is one of your signatures. In fact, we're connect this podcast out <laughs> of a, box. a similar box. That's There's right. This as a printer paper lid, basically full of your uh, recording equipment, and you have a different lid. Which you use for your teaching? What I bring gear. to class, yeah. exactly. Um, and and putting my computer bag down. So like, I really thought about what do I do when I enter into a classroom, mm-hmm. setting up chairs, things like that. And then the 
basically it, it it moves from as you talked about sort of setting up the podium so so it's it's my augustine lecture in cwc which is the lecture i've probably given the most of anything so those are my notes and the books that i bring and, and mm-hmm. those types of things and then later on in the film whenever those come back in then it's shots of me giving that lecture basically mm-hmm. um so i film that from a couple couple different angles um my son is the only other person credited in this because he <laughs> actually did he um because i couldn't if we did moving cameras with any of that, I couldn't do that. So we actually set it up on a little dolly and he was moving the camera around as I was teaching. And those are some of my favorite shots. Actually, I think they look really cool. Yeah. So those are, those are all banked. Um, banked has been a once as a, for those of you doing a deep dive into this podcast channel, banked is on a podcast uh, way way back when rogue one came out. That's um, right. He he critiqued the film with us. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so I, I wanted that to sort of run throughout the film, but I wanted to keep it, other than the beginning, keep it separate from the other footage. So okay. it only comes up. So the other framing device in the film is um, we sort of introduce, when we kind of close, a, a when a thought comes to an end or a mm-hmm. topic comes to an end, we fade out to black, and then we fade back in, and there are four teaching metaphors that run throughout it. So mm-hmm. Dan Ritchie talks about the idea of pilgrimage. Um, Marion Larson talks about the idea of hospitality mm-hmm. um and 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 park and the idea of parker palmer and creating a space um dick peterson talks about resonance mm-hmm. and then chris garrett's talks about um liberating a concentration camp i mean it's a it's a, it's a strange <laughs> metaphor but mm-hmm. it's very effective in the film i think mm-hmm. um so when they're talking about the metaphors that's when we go back to me in the classroom mm-hmm. but 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 those shots don't appear in the other parts of the film so i kind of used I kind of separated those out that way but it really was trying to have the arc of a class period in that way. But I didn't have the uh, budget for extras, so there's no student. You don't see students in that class. Right. That's why everything is shot pretty tight on the podium. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm glad you brought up those four metaphors. And that's one of those, I assume, one of those inductive sorts of things that you didn't know you were going to get that. Right. But once you got it, you sort of had this this framework for building essentially – set pieces yep. within the context of the overall documentary. Yeah, yeah. I, so I asked everyone the question about what their teaching metaphor is, which it turns out is what they ask uh, faculty candidates. That's one of the questions they get mm-hmm. asked. Um, so it was interesting to... So I have a lot of answers. People gave lots of answers to that. So I picked out those four because they also seemed to set up the next conversation. Yes. Um, and th- those were four of the... Um, I think most interesting ones. Uh, there, there were definitely others that I could have used, but that those were the four that I found most um, different and kind of compelling, and they connected to where we were headed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, um, what did uh, well? As you think about this this project in general, mm-hmm. and especially these fifteen people, could you point to something that ties them together? Or point to a couple of things that tie them together. Yeah, what's what's well, what's interesting is they really embody again as a Bethel grad, they embody my experience as being a, of being a student here. Hmm. Um, in that they that's a all, nice advertisement for the institution, right? Right. I mean, they they all they all. I guess one thing is is they all these questions weren't hard for them to answer, hmm. which means they're people who are naturally or vocationally reflective on what they do they don't just go out and do and do this and hope for the best but there's an unbelievable amount of 
thought and philosophy behind what they're doing. Yes. So that would be one thing I hope if a student were to see this would be like, oh, these this there's intentionality in the things that happen in the classroom hmm. from these teachers uh, and from you know most teachers that I encounter here. Uh, the other thing is is really the role of the role that relationship plays. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do, there's there's a big run where we talk specifically about that, but that kind of I think is woven through that that this that this is something where we are. Uh, I mean, the, the the sort of the famous John Edgren, who's Bethel's founder, right, yes. has this idea that that for him the relationship between student and professor is a really important one, and he says that we have one we only have one master, and that's God, and and that we are essentially friends in this educational enterprise, right? It's not mm-hmm. master and, and servant or something right. like that. Um, and there were some people who challenged that idea um, and tried to complicate that idea, I think, in some good ways. That mm-hmm. doesn't appear in the film, but in the archive, I'm um, talking about that. So I think the relationship runs through, the intentionality runs through, and then uh, passion runs through mm. it, too. I think that there, that th- it was fun. To, one of the questions I asked everyone that again, not a lot of this shows up in the film, but but sort of why study your discipline? Why should mm-hmm. a student study biology? Why should they study psychology or history or philosophy uh, or art? And that was really those were really interesting. I mean, they were they were ready to um, not just sort of sell their department. And what's funny is they they would almost apologize for saying, "Okay, I'm going to talk about how it'll help you get a job," but then they would say, "But that's not the important thing. The important mm. thing is that this is really about about." Uh, transformation about who you're becoming. Yes, um, and that yes. I, I think again, on our best days, that's what Bethel is. That that especially from the faculty perspective, that's how we think about education um, on our best days. And that that I didn't have to ask those questions; those things really rang through. So, so I think identity, like institutional identity, was fairly consistent throughout these. And again, I didn't ask about that; they talked about it. I feel like you've hit upon something that. Um, describes the current educational atmosphere in our country that um, the thing I do the most work or the thing I spend the most time doing with students is persuading them not uh, w- um, not to become you know a partisan one way or another or to think about a thing theoretically one way or another or to um, or to shift their their thinking in some way but I'm convincing them that the subject matter that we're talking about matters for its own sake yes and that their own vocational imperatives, their own desire to have a job or to be employable, while those are important things, are exist in sometimes in tension with and sometimes secondarily to making you into the better person that you can be. And that, uh, that this educational enterprise is about transformation, not just equipping for the next, next vacation. Right. And um, you've really captured that, I think. In, in this in this documentary that that's what great teachers are talking about if you're going to advise someone in our ed department or someone mm-hmm. who was thinking about graduate school or thinking about becoming a professor mm-hmm. um, what lessons would you refer them to because um, one thing to say great teachers are passionate but right. it's hard to tell someone go out and be passionate well it's interesting I mean, one of the questions that i did ask everyone so one i mean i might the easy the easy answer to that is they go to the archive and search for advice for young teachers because mm. like everybody has an answer to that mm-hmm. and uh, you know there are some things that ring through a lot of them but but uh the the advice that i really liked was this combination of a lot of people said like don't be too hard on yourself like you're not going to be great at this right away mm. but 
that, that that's not the totality of the advice for the young teacher. The, tel- the advice of the young teacher is don't be too hard on, hard on yourself, but at the same time, like, push yourself to grow. Yep. Like, don't also don't be too easy on yourself. Yes. Um, that, that, that this is, that this is work and this is lifelong work. And the, the best teachers are the ones who are always thinking about how can we do this better? And, and that can manifest itself in lots of ways. Because what I find is there are some teachers who try to improve by saying, I need to throw it all out and start over and rebuild and, and, or, or people who tinker with things. And then there are people who hone things and it's like, no, I'm going to keep doing this. I know I'm onto something here, Yes, but I just, I need to do it again and think about how I do it. It's not what I'm doing. That's that, that needs to get thrown out. But I, but I want to hone this thing to a kind of, you know, a sharper sharp edge. edge. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's lots of ways you can do that. But I think, uh, the big thing is, is don't stand still. Hmm. Um, what would you, so I, this is a speculative question. Is that okay. It. Yeah. You interviewed 15 teachers out of 20, mm-hmm. all of who've won the Beth University teaching award. Um, what, how do you expect the next five or maybe even the next 10 winners of that award will be different than the first 20? That's a really, really interesting. I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that they will be dramatically different. I mean, there will be different because there's different trends in education. That's kind of what I was pushing you towards. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that I will, I'll start by saying I think the core of those ideas, because I think if I had, if we had interviewed um, Bethel professors in the 1980s, mm-hmm. like we would get a lot of the same, the best, the best teachers here, probably mm-hmm. throughout, throughout its time, there, some of those themes would, would ring true. I think there would be a lot more, um, to some degree, there'd be a lot more talk about technology. Okay. Um, it seems like there was a, a, a technological um, transformation that happened probably 15 years ago um, when I was just starting mm-hmm. here. I mean, I came at a time where I remember the first person in CWC to use PowerPoint. Hmm. Right. Like, so, so that was, so I was around, I mean, my first, I don't know whether to congratulate you or to commiserate with right. you. Right. I mean, my first lectures are on overhead transparencies because, Same. because yeah. we just didn't have access, reliable access to a computer in the classroom to know like, okay, if I want to use PowerPoint, like I need to bring a computer in and I need to figure out how to work the projector that there wasn't an ease to that. So I feel like there was that. And that's the same time that we started to get learning management systems, Blackboard, Moodle. So, like I, I think the first course at Bethel that was a non-science or math course to have a course website was CWC in the um, hmm. fall of 1997 because I'm the one who built it <laughs> as a TA. Um, so, so like, like that stuff was really new, um, and I, so I, I'm guessing we're gonna see probably another wave of kind of new technologies as we continue to have students for whom that is really their experience of the world. I also think there's. Uh, there was some degree of kind of lament in terms of student preparedness. Hmm. And I don't know if that's a perennial thing. Uh, Cause right. again, I've only been doing this for 17 years. So I don't know if you were to talk to people in 1988, would they have, would it, would it have been the same? And they would have said, Oh, the student, their students aren't not at all. Like they were in the seventies or something. Like, I don't know that. Right. Um, so I mean I think I, those seem like the big the big kind of challenges in terms of I think the but some of them are perennial I mean the perennial challenges are student motivation and how prepared students are sure um, I think uh, Ken Steinbach does a pretty good job of 
um, talking about how education has changed since 2001 with, mm-hmm. in, you know, with sort of how we think about assessment and assessment can be a good thing. I mean, if you're, if you're a scientific teacher, you need assessment, but that can also kind of uh, pin you in to say, well, your objectives need to be accessible. And we run into this in our department where, sure. you know, if, if one of your objectives is to teach empathy um, and to have transformational experiences, well, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to put that on a Scantron form and really, right. really get at that. I mean, stu- you could ask students to sort of self-identify that, but then you're already kind of priming the pump to say, oh, we'd like you to say empathy. So, so, so some of those things are hard, and maybe we'll get better at assessing that. Maybe we'll – we won't I – mean, I, I can't imagine assessment kind of rolling back in terms of how we think about objectives right. and stuff like that. Right. Um, but I think we might get better at how we talk about those things. That would be my hope is that we get better at that. I hope, it be, I hope what it becomes is more seamless. Mm-hmm. I hope that the, because it sometimes it still feels like in our, when we talk about assessment, we're talking about a different function than oftentimes what we're conducting in the classroom, what, whether uh, the conveyance of content, the evaluation of our students in terms of whether they understand that content or not, and their competency and then there's a secondary component which is this assessment piece which is like how are we doing throughout that whole process and to the extent that we can integrate that better and better Mm -hmm. and so that our students don't ever feel like well now we're doing this separate thing but rather the assessment is part of the thing i i I, that's i think the next and i would say i would say the other thought for the next five or ten years i hope that it's not an even bigger sense of can the arts and humanities survive? Mm, I feel like mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of that, and that has to do with the climate at Bethel and financial things and stuff like that. There's there's this definite sense within the arts and humanities of like is is this going to survive? Mm-hmm. I, w- I mean, I would hope that ten years from now that would be like, oh, isn't that funny that we were worried about that? Yeah. That 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 this culturally swings back. Yes. In terms of how people think about education, how people think about those fields, uh, my fear is that it would that that would be even an even starker relief. Yeah. You know. Yep. We for those of you who don't don't follow the the world of education, education policy. There's a genuine concern and fear uh, throughout higher education that more and more students are gravitating towards specific professionalization programs, mm-hmm. uh, majors and programs of study that lead to a specific job career when they're when they're done. So essentially, they're they're taking vocational training, mm-hmm. and we are firmly instantiated in the liberal arts here. We believe that people who are educated broadly in a variety of fields, who are educated for the sake of education, who are able to adapt and learn broadly and, and, are, and are informed broadly will will do better in the long run than people who have a specific set of vocational trainings mm-hmm. for jobs that may evaporate in a changing global economy. All that to say, it's hard to convince parents to put down the kind of tuition dollars we're asking for for something that doesn't have a job title attached to it. Mm-hmm. Political Most political science majors don't become political scientists. Most history majors do not become historians. And so convincing them that there's something really valuable that comes out of that course of study ha- has been challenging. And I hope you're right. I hope the pendulum does swing back towards an appreciation of that. 
Um, I, I would just say, in addition to your concern in general, my concern is that increasingly that divide becomes socially stratified. Mm-hmm. That uh, the wealthy children of the upper class are the ones who can undertake those liberal arts careers because there isn't this sort of social pressure to find a, something with a job title attached to it. Right. And because those things have value, those people continue to do well. Um, because the liberal arts do matter, those people will continue to succeed with those degrees. What I want is for those middle class kids or those lower middle class kids, the families that you and I came from, to have some of those same experiences as right. well. And not be hemmed in by vocational training. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Well, I hope that this film does something to inspire people who are teachers, to encourage people to think broadly about the liberal arts and broadly about the kind of education we're offering here. I'm so glad you did it. Yeah, um, this, this was fun. Did you? Uh, is there anything else you want to tell people about the film or about how to go about accessing it? Well, yeah, I, I want to hit one more time. If you if you want to watch this, if you do a YouTube search for "Why We Teach" and throw in 2018, I'm sure it will come up in your mm-hmm. top the top five probably. Um, or you can go to um, cwcradio.wordpress.com, um, click on "Why We Teach." Uh, and that will have that will have the film on it. Um, the The tab next to that is called uh, the Teaching Project, mm-hmm. and that's where you can access all of the footage from these interviews. So I think especially if you watch the film and you're sort of really interested in one of the people and want to do a deeper dive into what they have to say, that's a great thing. If you're a Bethel grad and want to experience um, some of these beloved professors, that's a great thing to do. Um, one other thing that we're going to be doing this summer because we always have this this sense with the uh with the podcast feed that uh chris moore and i are not in the same room together much in this as much as we would like in the summer and when we are we're not necessarily recording it um so (laughs) believe it it or not we do have some conversations we do not record that's right um so what i'm going to be doing throughout the summer is each week and maybe a couple times on certain weeks i'm going to be putting in the audio from the individual interviews they're actually Mm. very listenable okay Um, so uh, and i think i'm going to be branding that either autobiography i think i'll probably brand it as autobiography podcast because it really does sort of fit in with that um so they'll probably be autobiography teaching project podcasts Mm -hmm. um so stay to subscribe to the feed if you're not already um that's a way to experience sort of the totality of these interviews and they're they really are not only interesting, but but I I mean I, one of the ways I thought about this is like this is a long halftime speech for me. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, I walk out of watching this feeling like I want to do nothing more than to get into a classroom with students. What a great send off, Sam Mulberry. Thank you for doing this. Anytime, appreciate it. Um, as always, you can email us at uh, live from ac second gmail dot com. Uh, like Sam said, look for things throughout the summer from us, and we'll have some of our regularly scheduled uh, podcasts back for you. We may have some things this summer, but I hope ba- so. uh, back uh, through the fall for sure. Uh, on behalf of my friend Sam, uh, this is Chris Moore. You've been listening for Live from AC Second. Go Royals. <laughs>